okay? All right, so with everything going on in the world, and with all the confusion, and with all the craziness, and with all of the issues that are important, there's one that's more important than anything that we don't need to forget about. And that is, is that the only light and the only truth that leads to eternal life and a fulfilled life here is that that comes from the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, he said that the end is not going to come until the gospel of the kingdom has been proclaimed to all nations and all parts of the world. And this is what he's given us to do. Not only has he saved us, but he's given us that privilege and that responsibility to be the very ones who spread the light. And we're to be the salt of the earth. And the salt has a preserving effect, right? Right? And you know what? And if it wasn't for the influence of people who understand the creator and how he designed things to work and, and living, not just believing it and talking about it, but living according to God's truth, can you imagine the decay that would be rampant in our world today? Can you imagine like the... the, the um, uh, it's a word I'm looking for here. The, um, oh man, it just left me. The uh, restraining, there it is, factor that God's people even have in this country. Of, you think it's lawlessness and chaos now. What if good people weren't here doing good things and loving those who are hard to love and, and doing good when people do bad? You know what I'm saying? Can you imagine what would happen in this country if it wasn't for people like you being a good influence for God, being light of the world? So salt has a preserving effect. Light uh, shows the way and illuminates. Sometimes it illuminates things we don't want to see, though. All right, so uh, today we're going to keep moving forward. Are you ready? Let's find um, today as we look at this text in John chapter 4. Now, we've, we've preached on worship from here. We've preached on a lot of different things, but I want to read a portion of this. But I think you know this story, okay? John chapter 4, that's where Jesus goes through Samaria, which was kind of surprising that somebody like him, who's a Jew, uh, and the disciples who were Jewish would go through Samaria and deal with Samaritans. We're going to talk about why. Most of you know why, but it was surprising that he would go there. It's surprising that he, being a man, would be talking to a woman, especially a woman like that. And we find out that he already knew all about her, but yet she had a bad past and a really dysfunctional present. Okay. Her life was messed up. Uh, and that Jesus had that encounter with her. And during that, he talks about worship. And he talks about, you know, being the water of life. That if you ask me, I'll give you, you know, water. that You'll never thirst again. Of course, he was talking about something spiritual, not literal and physical. Okay, right? You know the story. If not, you're going to love this story. The thing about it is, is I want to get to the back part of that first here. When uh, Jesus had spoken to her, and he finally just says blunt, bluntly who he is. He identifies himself as the Christ and the Messiah to this woman. You know, he wasn't so forward about, at this point, identifying himself that way among the Pharisees and people like that. But then to this woman who had a bad reputation, he really identifies himself in verse 26 uh, of who he is. Well, at that point, Jesus has been at the well there with the woman by himself. 
He had sent the disciples away to get food. So let's pick up in verse 27. Would you get your Bible ready? I want you to turn to the passage. I'm reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version. You read along and whatever you have there. It's important you have the Word of God open. If you're using an app, uh, power it up. Let's, let's keep it there so you can look at it as we go through this and as we come back through. All right, we're going to start in verse 27. Jesus has had this encounter with the woman. And then it says, just then his disciples came back. And they marveled that he was talking with the woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has someone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For, there, for here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. And here was her testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Boom. That's pretty big. We know this is the Savior of the world. Most of the Pharisees and the learned people back in Judea and, and, and in Jeru Jerusalem weren't ready to admit that yet, were they? Powerful, powerful stuff. All right, so what I want to do is really look at this where Jesus says it's the harvest already. The harvest is now. I mean, you might think that there's Three months, four months, whatever. But yet, I'm telling you right now, the fields are white. They're ready to be harvested. And if that was true then, it's really true today. So he was trying to teach the disciples here. Now stay with me because we got to do a little bit of teaching as we're preaching here. Because we got to learn some context and some things going on. If you really want to understand what he wants us to get from this. And we're also going to watch Jesus. So how do you communicate the gospel? How do you connect? How do you deal with someone that you have absolutely nothing in common with? I mean, you couldn't get more opposite than Jesus and this woman, but yet watch how we're going to learn some things as we watch how Jesus connects with her, relates to her and helps her understand and grasp something that before she couldn't even imagine. All right. Now it's been said that years ago, a missionary doctor many years ago was before communism, obviously, in China. And he was ministering among poor uh, farmers, this doctor was. And uh, 
they had been able to develop techniques to remove cataracts. And cataracts can get to the point that you're practically blind. I had a, I had a great uncle who was on up in years back in the 1980s. He had, uh, he had cataract surgery finally. Uncle Dude Crockett, remember him? Uncle Dude lived to be 100. But he just marveled at the things that he could see that he even know some of that. He didn't even notice some of the houses that had been built around. But it was like a miracle. Well, this doctor had, uh, was able to do that procedure and had gone as a missionary doctor and was in a very poor village area. And he had a, a, a farmer who, who had come to him and he was able to perform the surgery. And it was as a miracle this farmer could see. And said a few days later, the doctor looked out his window and noticed that farmer coming toward him. And he had a... a he had the end of a long rope in his hand, and single file holding on to the rope was a long line of blind Chinese farmers bringing them to him, right? You see that? See, this happened to him, and he couldn't wait to go tell all the other ones in the surrounding villages what had happened to him, and they were blind, so he just got a rope, and he led them to that doctor that they could experience what he had. Now, obviously, it's a great illustration of what you and I ought to be doing. That if Jesus has opened our eyes spiritually and he's delivered us from ourselves and given us eternal life, we ought to be, it ought to be the thing. Nobody has to tell us. We ought to be excited to go bring others to Jesus so the same thing can happen with them, especially if we care about them. And that's exactly what this Samaritan woman, woman did in this story. Did you notice that? After she realized who Jesus was, she got so excited that she forgot all about her water pot and left it right there by the well, went back into the village, told everyone, and literally brought to Jesus everybody that would come with her. So not only does Jesus teach about the harvest here and that it is now, but we're going to look at this story of his interaction with this woman and learn a lot about sharing our faith with others. And the first thing that I want us to think about as we go through this, are you ready? I don't think you're ready. Yeah, okay, good. See, that helps. That helps. Helps us go faster even. All right. First thing that we want to talk about is connecting with others. We can see how Jesus connects with her. We got to, if we're going to share, we've got to connect, right? You have to. Listen. <clears throat> they're not just going to come here to this building or some of the other buildings where churches meet in our community just to hear the gospel. They're probably, in fact, a lot of you guys hardly come here as much as you should. Okay, we got some chuckles, but no amens. But, you know, it's kind of like, yeah, just, what do I do here? Uh, so that. <laughs> Thanks, Wayne. So anyway, so that's probably, so we're going to have to take the gospel, the good news, where they are. That's how this is supposed to work. We gather to worship and to fellowship and be discipled and grow and be equipped so that we can go from here and share the gospel. And hopefully you help bring people to fellowship with the Lord Jesus and other believers. Uh, so we, we have to go where they are, and that's exactly what Jesus did. And he did this consistently. You watch him, and you watch how that God not only came down to us to pay the price for our sins and save us, but he came fully human, fully God, and he lived out his life in the flesh on earth. He got tired. He felt thirsty. He was tempted in all points like us, with, but without sin. Ah, and he set an example 
I've got something I can look at. Anything you want to know on leadership, anything you want to know on any of these things, you can just look at Jesus' life. That God came down and modeled it in the flesh in real time on planet Earth. I don't know. I just think that's awesome. But I watch Jesus, and I see he did this constantly, consistently, and creatively. In fact, um, in uh, verse 3, it says he left Judea and was going to Galilee. All right? Now, he, it says here that he had to go, in verse 4, or needed to go through Samaria. Now, if you've been in the Bible a long time, you know all this. If, it, if you haven't, then this is going to be important that you know this, that uh, the kind of the geography here. The uh, Samaritans were very disrespected by the Jews. In fact, history records that respectable Jews wouldn't even want to get Samaritan dust on their feet. I mean, they considered the Samaritans unclean. If we walk through dirt that they've been walking on, we'll get like spiritual cooties all over us. You know what I'm saying? So here's kind of the geography. I don't know how well you can see that, but, um, oh, wait a minute. I hit the wrong button. Oh, I forgot how this thing works here. Okay, back to the map. There it is. Okay, this button right here. See the pointer? All right, so, so this is Judea. Rome kind of divided Palestine up like this. Uh, so you have Jerusalem right there. Jesus has been. He's been baptizing probably over here from Jericho. There's the Jordan River. And Galilee is up here, like Nazareth. He's going to be in Cana next. And that's right up here. And uh, Capernaum and all of that's right up there. Now, a lot of times, most Jews would go across the river and go around and go to stay out of Samaria uh, because of the Samaritans. They didn't want to be contaminated by their uncleanliness. But it says Jesus needed to go, and he comes in, and he's going to end up in this area right around here. And so you can see that Samaria, Samaria is in between Judea and Galilee. So many times they would go around, but Jesus said, I have to go through Samaria. So I think that's amazing that he was willing to go where a lot of people were not willing to go. Are we willing to go somewhere where a lot of people would prefer just not to go and go there for the right reason? Are you willing to get your hands dirty, get your feet dirty? Now, the prejudice between the Jews and Samaritans was so great. Can I give you a little background on it? It all starts way back. You remember after King David, after King Solomon, then Solomon's son Rehoboam became king. And while he was king, uh, under his rule, the nation divided into two two fragments, actually. And you can read about that in 1 Kings 12, if you want to look at it. Uh, and there was, a, there was a northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, now, a guy named Rehoboam, no relation to, or a guy named Jeroboam, no relation to Rehoboam, led the rebellion, and 10 of the tribes revolted, and they formed their own nation. All right, so then you have Judah and Benjamin, that is in the south, and Jerusalem's their capital. They still have, like, the, uh, the temple there and all of that. Uh, and this happens as you're going through, reading through 1 Kings, 2 Kings, and all of that. And then all of a sudden, instead of one nation, you're dealing with two nations. And some of these prophets, they went to Judah. And some of these prophets went to Israel, like Elijah. And some of them, you know, went to both and, and, and would proclaim God's word. But anyway... So what happens then over the process of time is that Jeroboam was afraid that those people up there would come back to Jerusalem and go back together uh, because of the temple being down there. So what they did was they kind of developed their own religion. 
They took like the first five books of Moses. We'll keep that. But they didn't really take any of the rest of the Old Testament as the word of God. And they didn't really listen to the prophets and things like that very well either, did they? Uh, And so what they began to do is they began to mix their heathen idolatry with some of the truth that came from the law. And they mixed it together. And you can't do that. But that's what happened. Then as time goes on, God kept sending his prophets to Samaria. He kept, and Samaria became the capital of, of Israel at that time. And Jerusalem was the capital of Judah. And God sent prophet after prophet to warn them about their sin and their idolatry. And even told them, if you don't listen, you're going to be taken captive by the Assyrians. God even named it. Finally, are you still with me? In 722, 721 B.C., the Assyrians came and took them captive. Those northern ten tribes. And they scattered the middle and upper classes throughout the other nations they had conquered. And then the people that they had taken out, they replaced them with some of their own people in that land. And these heathen folk intermarried with the remaining Israelites. And it resulted in a nation of what the Jews considered half-breeds. They were kind of mixed uh, racially and they were messed up. Uh, religiously, okay? That's how they looked at them. And it was very distasteful to the Jews. Um, So they mixed heathen idolatry with the law of God. They even built their own rival temple over here, uh, Mount Gerizim, which is is right there. They even built their own temple there. And as I said, they believed in the first five books of the Bible. They rejected the rest of it. Um, So over time, then you come down from the time between the Old Testament and New Testament to the time of Jesus's Day And that whole region up there was divided by the Romans and became Samaria. And this whole area was, was populated by those who had a little bit of Israelite or Hebrew heritage and then uh, uh, other. You know, they were a mixed race of people. And they had their own religion. And so here it was. Because of this, there was an incredible amount of both religious and racial prejudice among the Jews toward the Samaritans. So you kind of get a little context there. They just didn't want to have to deal with each other. There was a lot of bad blood there too. But Jesus said he needed to. He had to go through Samaria. All right? So he's not going to go the long way around. He's going to go right through. And also, being God, he knew there was a divine appointment there, right? That he had. This woman and all these people would have never met Jesus had he not gone there. Right? And you know what? There are some people and there are some places we need to go and there are some people we need to encounter if they are ever going to learn about the gospel. I mean, it's not going to happen any other way. I don't know how we're thinking it's going to happen, but this is the way it's got to happen. So, contact. We've got to learn how to contact and connect with people that we may not even have a lot in common with, all right? The next thing we kind of think about here is everyday opportunities. Don't miss everyday opportunities. Don't fail to make connections. You're just out living your life. I just want to live my life. I just want to do my thing. I just want to be happy. I just want to be comfortable. That's good. But if you want to see other people impacted by the gospel... You're going to have to make connections with folk. 
Another thing we have to do is pay attention to everyday opportunities. You might be thinking, what we, and this is a cop-out. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to say it, man. This was a cop-out in years past. What we need to have around here is a revival. Now, what they're talking about is not true revival where Christians who have become lukewarm get on fire for the Lord and start sharing their faith. It, it should mean that, but too often it meant what we need to do is schedule an out-of-town dude to come in who preach hellfire brimstone, and then we kind of come together every night, and, and we'll have a series of services, and then a lot of y'all won't show up every night, but the ones of us who do will kind of look down our noses at those people who don't show up every night, and then some of them will show up at all, and then you really get judged because y'all just don't care about revival, and then the guy comes and he preaches and all that stuff. Maybe a few people pray. We go through that. And then you can check that box and say, man, I went every night. And then the guy leaves. And then we just go right back doing what we were doing. Happened too much, didn't it? And, you know, having someone come in and, and preach and have a special series of focused uh, purpose is awesome and helpful. All right? But you don't have revival on a calendar just because you schedule something. We need to schedule a revival. How about let's just have one? I'll never forget some years back. It was during a month of like March and April, and we had over 20 people had been baptized during about seven or eight weeks there. And someone come up to me and said, you know what we need to do is have a revival. I'm like, and what do you see going on around you? Right? Um, and like I said, that can be a tool, but scripturally, the way, what we're talking about is, is we need revival. We need the saints to get revived. But so many times people think if you just schedule something like that, somehow we'll get some of these people who don't know the Lord to just come and they'll hear you and then they'll just get saved and then that's it. In other words, we're going to hire somebody to come in and preach the gospel and they should just come and get saved. That's not how it happens, Right? It's good to have somebody come and preach the gospel, but revival happens amongst God's people who need to get awake and alive. All right? Maybe some things we need to repent of and get our hearts in tune with God. And then God uses us to go and connect and share. And let me just tell you, where most of it's going to happen, where the gospel is spread and the good news and the harvest happens, is it going to be happening when we have our meetings in the building? It's going to happen during everyday opportunities. Means we're taking church out of the building and onto the streets and into the homes and wherever we are. That's where it gets real, folks. That's where it happens. It'd be a whole lot easier if you just pay somebody to come preach the gospel and folks just come hear him. But now, 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 what God wants, he, he does want us to be preaching the gospel and gathering together, but he wants you and me and every single one. There's people that you can connect with, and there's people you're going to have opportunities that I and others will never, ever have an opportunity, never connect with. And this is what's going on here. Jesus stopped at a well. Why? Verse 6. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. He was tired and he was thirsty. Everyday stuff. He's tired, he's thirsty, there's a well. He stops. He sends the disciples to get food. He's also hungry. He's there. Everyday opportunities like that present themselves all the time. Are we even looking for them? Or is it kind of like, well, I'm not at church. I'm not even thinking about God. I'm not even thinking about people's lives or their souls. 
And you might think that the Holy One of Israel, the Almighty Messiah, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the King of the Jews, wouldn't have too much in common with a Samaritan woman of ill repute, right? The holy, perfect Son of God would not have, I'll tell you, it seems like he would not have much in common with this woman of a bad reputation. Are you with me here? But guess what happened? I mean, I mean what, what would they even talk about? Huh? He's a Jew. She's a Samaritan. She's been around. He's the holy, perfect Son of God. What do you talk about? Well, Jesus shows us. They were both at the same well. Well, 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 here we are at the well. They both were thirsty. They both wanted water. They had all of that in common, did they not? Did you see that? And then he asked her a question. He said, give me something to drink. Now, he wasn't being disrespectful, but this blew her away. And it says it in the next verse where it says that he, being a Jew, would ask something to drink, would ask her for a drink of water, her being a woman and a Samaritan. It blew her away. Did you see that? He asked her this question. And obviously, Jesus wasn't afraid of getting spiritual cooties from her by drinking water from her pot that she let down and poured. But he asked her for that, but he was wanting to give her far more than she could ever imagine. But here's what I want you to see. By his simple act of saying, can you give me something to drink? Here's what he did. He broke down barriers. Do you see that? For him, and she could recognize him as a Jew and a man, for him to approach her and speak to her was one thing. And then for him to say, hey, could you give me, I will drink water out of your water pot. He didn't have one. He broke down racial barriers right there by having that contact. An everyday opportunity. Something as simple as a drink of water. And respecting her. And when he did that, it was strange to her. I mentioned it a couple of times, but you just got to look there in verse 9. She said to him even, how is this that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And, and then John makes sure we remember Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. It's told her something. It told her she was valuable to him. It told her that all the stuff from the past and all the prejudice religiously and racially didn't matter to him. She's just as important as anybody else. So he broke down the barriers and asked her for something because he's saying, if you knew what was going on, you would ask me for something. Now, traditionally, women were the ones who drew water. So can we get a little more context here? Let's get a little, let's understand this. Too often people just want to read the Bible and, and act like it happened, you know, in Wright County, Missouri, you know, last year or two ago, right? It's a different time, a different culture, and to understand and interpret it and apply it to our day, we need to understand it in the way, in the place, in the culture in which it was originally, where it happened. And so traditionally women were the ones who went to the well and got the water. That was like woman's work, Right? Yeah. And you know, in some tribal areas, that's still one thing that women do. And you even see in some of the tribal areas in Africa, we have friends that serve there. And some of these, in some of the places where we have helped in years past send people to drill wells so they have clean water. 
so that we could give them the water of life, right? You know, we've done that. Some of you have actually gone on some well drilling uh, mission trips in places like West Africa. But some of the women would come and get what water was there, and they would carry these great old big water pots on their heads. And it was pretty amazing, really. They'd taken care of their family. But in that culture, it was similar that the women were the ones who went and drew the water. And water is very important. Water is a necessity, right? I mean, you can, even though... <clears throat> Even though your kids or grandkids may not think they can live like until 3 or 4 o'clock without a meal, without food, you know, it's like after you get out of church, they're dying. You're going to die soon if I don't get food, right? I can remember feeling that way occasionally. But, you know, it's just like, you know, you're not just hungry. You're hangry because you're hungry and angry at the same time because you're in such a bad mood because you're so hungry. But the truth is you could live about a month or so or more without food, but you can only live a few days without water. You know, if you ever get in a survival situation, you know, the first thing you're going to have to do is start thinking about water because the clock is ticking. It really is. So water is very important. And Jesus uh, is going to um, introduce to her something that is even more important than water. So it says she came at the sixth hour. You see how it's about the sixth hour? And it seems that John is using the Jewish method of time. So that would put it about noon. Well, that makes sense. It's hot. It's time to rest. He sends the disciples away to get food, probably at a nearby village at the market. He's going to get food and come back. And so, But usually when we study the culture, we find that the women usually came early in the morning or then late in the evening to get their water. And it's kind of strange that this is such a powerful and popular well and that it's at noon that she is there by herself. Now, I can't tell you that this is interpretation, but this is speculation, right? Because some places when we don't have the interpretation, you can speculate if it's within reason. And so I think it's within reason to say, since, since culturally we know that most of the women went in the morning or in the evening, and she's there at noon, and she's by herself, that is probably like not a good idea for her to go when the other women were there. Could be. You think that could be an okay speculation? I'm not saying that's true, but I'm saying it could very well be. As I try to fill in some gaps here. It could be from what we find out about her that a lot of the other women did not like her. Because she liked a lot of the men. True? So she's there by herself. And she's surprised that Jesus would ask her for water. And... Uh, and then the disciples in verse 27 are really surprised when they see him talking to her, a woman, and knowing she's Samaritan. And it says in verse 27, they came back and they marveled that he was talking with the woman. But no one said, what do you seek or what are you talking? What are you doing, Jesus? They, they at least had learned enough at this point to keep their mouth shut when it came to stuff Jesus was doing. Anyway, that was one of the smarter things that they did. So everyday opportunity, something as simple as a drink of water, right? Something as simple as standing in line. I don't know. Watch for those opportunities. Yeah. Man, I could go and give a lot of illustrations here, but I want to move on and get through this. Not just everyday opportunities, but Jesus uses everyday illustrations. Uh, he used common. You don't have to get into some deep theological stuff. To share basic truth. Because for people to learn new truth, you got to start with something they know, right? To build a bridge to something they don't know. Anytime you're going to learn new truth of something that you don't know, you've got to start with something you do and relate it. It has to relate. And that's what Jesus did. That's what the parables were all about. Look how he uses these illustrations. He used common, everyday things to explain supernatural things. 
Hmm? Isn't that awesome? Can we learn something here? And he used the illustration of water, and everybody can relate. And it leads to her considering uh, his identity and who he is. But I noticed that it, it, how he related to her contrast with how he related to Nicodemus in chapter 3. And he was like her opposite. He was a Jew. He was a Pharisee. He probably knew most all of the Old Testament by heart. He was even on the council, the Sanhedrin council, we find out. And then here she was a Samaritan and a woman who was very dysfunctional. Okay, so with Nicodemus, he talked about, he used birth and the wind to talk about the spirit and the spiritual birth, right? Here, he uses water, food, and the harvest to teach her and the disciples. But there are four things that she needs to know when she encounters Jesus. And uh, Jesus said in verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Four things she needs to know. And that is, first of all, the identity of the ones who's speaking. He says, if you really knew who I am, that's foremost and then what he has to offer and why she needs it and how she can receive it she needs to know who he is what he has to offer why she needs it and how she can receive it there are people that you need to, that you know that need to know who he is they they need to know who he is more than they need to know a lot of other stuff they need to know who he is they need to know what he has to offer they need to know why they need it. And they need to know how they can receive it. Boom! That's it! That's the main thing. Now, he says living water. And that refers to a never-ending supply. It's like a spring that keeps flowing up. Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God. Oh, a gift. God has a gift. God has a gift for me. She probably thought God had forgotten about her. But God has actually a gift for me. That's something that he would pay for and offer me. Yes, God has a gift, and he paid for it himself. Then the identity issue came up, if you knew who was talking to you. And so then she's like, wait a minute. Um, you don't even have anything to draw with in verse 11. And then said, where do you get that living water? Verse 12, are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well, and he drank from it himself? And, and um, so she's kind of like, who are you? It's interesting how the Samaritans looked at Jacob still as one of their heroes. And so he says, everyone who drinks in verse 13 of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give them will never be thirsty. And the water that I give them will become like an artesian well. It will become like a well inside them springing up uh, uh, water, welling up to eternal life. What? Eternal life? Wow, this is awesome. And so she's like, yeah, I'm in. Next verse, sir, give me some of that water. I'm in. She's excited about it. You ever notice that Jesus doesn't answer most of her questions? She was asking wrong questions. And she's about to ask another wrong question. And sometimes you and I don't even know enough to ask the right questions. Some even people we talk to, we, they don't even really know enough to ask the right questions. And so we don't, we, what we need to do is give the answers to the right questions, all right? Because they may not even know enough to ask the right questions. Jesus says that with what he can give her, she'll never thirst again. And she says she wants this. And then Jesus says, go call your husband. Go get your husband. That's the right thing to do. Uh, you should go get your husband. Well, when he said that, it's like it scratched the scab off of all her old wounds. 
and why she needs it, why she needs this living water. She doesn't exactly tell the truth, and she says, I don't have one. But then Jesus reveals that he knows all about her. And verse 17 says, you're right in saying, I have no husband, for you've had five husbands. And the one that you have now is not your husband. So, you know, in what you said, yeah, you're true. Which, by the way, Jesus is kind of showing here that when you just shack up together, God doesn't look at it the same as if you are publicly and officially married. The one you have now, the one you're living with now is not your husband. You had five. No wonder a lot of the other ladies didn't like her, possibly, right? He knows all about her. And uh, now we're back to identity. Because in verse 19, she says, she's, she's, she's shocked by this. She says, sir, whoa, I perceive that you are a prophet. And then she asked the wrong question about, well, if you're a prophet and you know things, uh, there's this controversy. And I want to get it right because she seems to be someone that wants God, that wants to seek God. She just didn't know where to find him. And maybe she was trying to find it in men, in relationship, and she kept striking out and being used and abused, and, and it was a mess. And so she said, I perceive you're a prophet. And um, so she asked him a question, said, our, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you guys say Jerusalem's a place, and so what is it? And so Jesus talks to her a little bit about worship and that the point is it's not here. It's not there. The hour is coming and now it is that it's not a location. It's not an external thing. It's something that happens in your heart, wherever you are. God is a spirit and those that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And so now it kind of keeps going to the identity. That's where Jesus is trying to get her. She got off track with this whole thing about where should we go worship but he brings her back to identity by talking about God and God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So then that brings this. She goes, I know that Messiah is coming. Now, Messiah is a translation of the Hebrew word. The Greek word is Christ. It means the anointed. It's talking about the same thing. So when you see Messiah or when you see Christ, it's talking about the same thing. The Messiah, the anointed one, the deliverer who was prophesied to come. And so they understood that, the Samaritans did. And she said, the woman said, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. So maybe when Christ gets here, when the Messiah gets here, maybe he can tell us and, you, and answer that question. Did you notice what Jesus says? Now, you don't get it in the English. You don't get it in any of our English translations. But if you look in the original Greek even... Basically, when Jesus deals with her, he brings it back to real. So besides the everyday illustration of water, now he did something that we've got to learn, and that's not to be diverted by the wrong questions. We need to talk about who he is and what he has to offer, why they need it, and how they can receive it. So... He tells her, by the way, salvation is of the Jews in verse 22. And what that means is that it had been prophesied that through the tribe of Judah, this deliverer was going to come, this Messiah, this, this one that she talked about. Um, she's been very confused maybe about, and it concerns salvation because the Messiah is going to be the deliverer. And they all believed he was coming. But then, finally, you get her down to verse 26. And when she says that Christ will come, the Messiah, and Jesus said to her, literally in the Greek, it says, I am. He didn't say, 
Um, as, as it sounds here, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. That's how you would translate in English. And he didn't even say it in Greek the way that you would say it. He didn't say, I am the one you're talking about. He said it differently. It's not a me, it's ego, a me. He put these two words together that was very emphatic. And literally, he's saying to this, it says that Jesus just, just said to her, so here's what he said, I am that speaks to you. I am. And the way he said it sounded a whole lot what God said to Moses when he said, what's your name at the burning bush? I am. The emphatic way that it came out, he's identifying himself as the I am. It's no wonder she dropped her water pots and ran to town, right? It's no wonder she forgot all about literal water and she ran back to tell everyone, all the men, everybody else about Jesus. And this is when the disciples show up. So here's something I want to skip down and just before we wrap up with the end part of this is, is one more thing. The woman goes back and tells everybody. So here's one more thing I want you to notice before we wrap this up. And that is don't underestimate the power of personal testimony. She didn't know very much about Jesus, right? She didn't understand the depths of the doctrine of the Trinity, of the triune nature of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, did she? She didn't understand really very much about Jesus. But what he said to her at this point, she embraced and she believed it. And she went, and she doesn't know much, but she shares what she knows. You might say, well, I don't know much, but you can share what you do know and what you have experienced. And this is exactly what happens. It's not just the information. Stay with me here. They saw something in her and about her that obviously was different, did they not? She probably wasn't very popular to be there at the well at the time that she was there. But now she goes back and there's just something about her that causes a bunch of them to drop what they're doing and go see for themselves. Don't underestimate the power of personal testimony. We were, some of us were talking even before worship about how that we need to hear the word of God and the truth and be equipped, but we also need to hear testimonies. We need to hear what God and how God is working in each other's lives. It builds our faith when we hear that. Um, and many of them come out to check it out themselves, and then they end up believing in Jesus, it says in verse 39. And it was because of the testimony of this woman who didn't have a good reputation even before this. Because of her testimony that they went and met Jesus themselves. You have a testimony. Did you know that? Listen to me. It includes, but it's not just about what you believe. It's about who you are. It's about who you are and about how Jesus has impacted your life. And it's as simple sometimes as telling someone who I was before Christ, how I came to know who he is, how I came to understand what he has to offer and how it was made plain to me why I need it. And then I understood how to receive it by faith. You've got that story, and you can share that. And your testament, see, they may not know the Word of God. They may not know about all these churches, but they know you, and they know about changes in your life, and where's that coming from? Then you have an opportunity. They've just asked you to introduce me, right? Would you please introduce me? Where's that coming from? How are you getting through this? How did you change? How did you quit that? How did you get there? 
to where you are now. What they've done is just ask you to introduce them to how that happened. And your testimony is your testimony. They can argue a lot of things, but they can't argue somebody real and alive. Steve, you remember the lame man that Jesus healed? There he is. It's kind of hard to deny what's happened here, right? It's kind of hard to deny that God's been at work. You're a witness. What does a witness do? Testify. That's a testimony. You're a witness to what Jesus, his truth, and what he's done in your life. John, who wrote this, who recorded this, tells us in the book of 1 John this. He says, 1 John 1.1. Here's what he's saying. He says, I'm just giving you testimony. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard. So he's talking about Jesus here. He says, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, our hands have handled, concerning the word of life. He's calling Jesus the word of life. He says, I have, I'm giving you firsthand information, folks. I was there. I saw it with my own eyes. I looked on him. I touched him. And uh, concerning Jesus. And then in verse 3, he says this. He says, that which you, we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. I'm going to tell you, and here's what you do as a witness. You tell what you have heard, what you have experienced, and how it's changed your life. That's what John said he was doing as he wrote that letter. That's simply that. So here's the thing. Our greatest thing Listen to me. Our greatest thing isn't to win people over to our point of views. It is to introduce others to Jesus and assist them in checking him out themselves. So it's their decision. So that they can come to know truth. So that they can have faith in him. And they can have their own relationship with God Almighty. Now, Jesus stayed with them, it said, two days, which is amazing for a Jew. And it says, many more, verse 41, believed because of his own word. Listen to their testimony. Down in verse 42, it says, they said to the woman, so they came to Jesus. They believed her enough to come to Jesus, but then they heard him and experienced him themselves. And then they said, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and now we know he is the deliverer, the savior, the Messiah, the Savior of the whole world. And so some might say, what happened in your life was amazing. You helped me come to Jesus. But now I believe, not just because of you, but because I have embraced his truth and I have experienced him myself. I know Jesus too. I'm not just hearing about you knowing him. I've heard God's truth too. Now I understand it. I believe it. But we've got to, we want to argue with people. We want to do, listen, we need to get to that point that we bring them so that they can check him out themselves. Anything you can talk someone into, somebody else can talk them out of. I know this after the resurrection and the gospel began to spread from Jerusalem after Stephen was killed in Acts chapter 7. Philip went and preached in Samaria and it's multitudes we're ready to believe and be baptized. And you can't help but think that it was from seeds planted right there and the harvest that happened right there. There was a whole bunch of people there that already knew about him. They hadn't heard about the resurrection. And when they did, they were ready to grow. Check it out. Acts chapter 8, verse 5. Now, last of all, the purpose of why we're here. That's what Jesus reminds the disciples about. Because we go back to them, and this isn't just about reaching the Samaritans. It's about teaching the disciples and us what's really going on around us and what's our real purpose for being here. 
they're curious about the woman, and they saw him talking with her, but they, they, they don't realize there's a lot more going on. There's a, they're a lot like us. We think about our simple little lives and our simple little meetings and our simple little things that we do, and we fail to realize there's more going on, folks. Jesus said, I've got food to eat you guys don't even know about. That's just like, listen to me, on Tuesday nights, there's a whole lot more going on than just feeding hungry people that come to celebrate recovery. There's a whole lot more going on than just physical food. But those of you who help provide the physical food, you're helping open doors and connections to minister the spiritual food. On Wednesday night, there's a whole lot more going on than just giving food to kids and getting them to come. Uh, But to also receive the word of life and be nourished by that, see? See, there's a whole lot more going on in what you're doing and in everyday stuff and in here than what we realize. He wants us to see what the real purpose is. So now we're ready to learn something else about the harvest. Maybe a multitude of people were coming to them when Jesus declared the harvest is now. Even before he went to the cross and was resurrected. I mean, he says, look up and see it, guys. We're talking about eternal life here. When he says, do not say, there are still four months, or do you not say, there are still four months, then comes a harvest. I say to you, lift up your eyes, look at the fields, they're already white to harvest. Harvest is now, folks. Listen to me, follow me through this. We're talking about eternal life here. In verse 36, here's what he says. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. Those involved in the reaping this harvest need to remember this. We know that those who reap the harvest, they bring the harvest in and they receive their wages. Listen to me. Jesus wants you to know that both the one who sows and the one who reaps get their rewards. It's one work. They're going to get to help reap where they haven't sown anything. But there's going to be other times that they're going to sow, but they may not get to see the harvest. Someone else will enter into the work, and someone else will do it. It's all one work, folks. We all have different jobs in the harvest. It's one Lord, one Savior, one church. There are people who need to hear. There are people who need to encounter Jesus more than they need to encounter us. But they're not going to encounter him except through us. And the harvest is now. And I want to tell you, the fields are white. It's white. Time is running out. They can't wait for us to get our act together. They can't wait for us to get it all figured out of just how we're going to do things. They need to know Jesus now. They, They can't wait till everybody in our churches figure out what style they like. What kind of, what music they like, what instruments. They can't wait for that. Nonsense. They need Jesus. But see, the enemy gets us diverted. Everything from Bible translations to instruments and to styles and to the way you dress, casual or or super whatever. They can't wait for us to figure all that out. They just need Jesus. And they need him right now. Let's pray.